We are all ready for the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Let me read this morning, and we're going to start with verse 12, and we'll go through verse 19. So let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came forth from him and he healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I... I just love the sound of Luke's gospel when he continually says, and he healed them all. Um, That is so powerful. We we are seeing in this scripture today, we are seeing an actual, uh, I want to say a picture, if you will, of the future. I was just looking online here real quick. Sorry, I got distracted to try and see if I could pop you up on my my computer, but I didn't do it quick enough so I could actually see the live comments you made. I always want to invite you to make a live comment. I'm a little closer to the camera here, a good level, so I can read them, I think, if I see them, if they pop up on my uh, camera screen. But this idea that, um, that Luke is giving us the power of the gospel, uh, he's giving us a picture of the future church. I really believe that. And I'm going to talk about that when we get to the end. But let's go, uh, let's go back to the beginning of what we started reading, verse 12. And let's, let's do some th- comparisons here. This scripture tells us that Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. And if you remember back in chapter 5 or 4, I can't remember, it said, he went out into the wilderness to pray. So we know from Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 35, it tells us, that Jesus' habit was that before dawn, he would rise so early that he would always go to a lonely place, or meaning a a place where he was all alone and he could pray to his Father. That was Jesus' habit. It should be our habit. And I was just actually just teaching about this last night in the lesson I forgot to record on audio, but I'll, I'll get the audio off of the video later. My good friend Gene Rankin, shout out to Gene. He can separate the audio off of this Facebook, and uh, I've had to do that a couple of times, so really thankful for Gene and his ability to do that. But So I'm, I'm going to not have that up too quickly here. But last night we were in Psalm 5, and, and we talked about this exact thing, because it's another one of those morning prayer psalms. And it just talks about you know, our need to be up early before the dawn, seeking the Lord, worshiping Him, communing with Him. I mean, that's where the power is going to be to start our day. And that's where Jesus found His power 
to really be able to do the ministry. Sometimes we just, we're guilty of just giving Jesus his divinity and saying, yeah, Jesus can do all that because he's God. But, but we, we fail our theology because Jesus is all human and all divine. And in his humanity, that's, it's his humanity that had to wake up every day and go to work just like we do. It's his humanity that had to wake up every day and face the devil just like we do. And it's his humanity that had to find that communion with the Father. Pamela, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. So, so don't just say, ah, oh, Jesus can do that because he's God. No, we can do it too because he is God and has given us his spirit. We too can learn to live like him. And we can get up every day and start our day with communion with, with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and begin like Jesus. So Jesus is making what I'm going to call the most important decision of his ministry. I'm going to call this the most important because he's about to choose. He knows he has to choose some people that he can invest himself in and that he can empower for when he goes back to heaven to, to run the church, to extend the ministry to the ends of the world. He calls these his apostles. He names them, it says, his apostles. Now, we notice in the scripture it says that he begins after, after going up to the mountain to pray. And I really think Luke's giving us a parallel here. That the great figures of our faith get close to God, and the mountains are an image of getting close to God. So Moses, when Moses needed to commune with God, when Moses met God, he met him, first of all, on a mountain. And he went back to that mountain several times to receive the commandments and to commune with God and to get the strength to lead. And so uh, this is kind of a parallel to that. Luke is showing us that Jesus, who's greater than Moses, of course, but remember the Jewish audience, they're, they're always thinking of Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses, and he goes to a mountain to pray all night long for his greatest decision. And, and it says here that he continued in prayer all night. That shows us how important this was. That shows us how difficult it was. This wasn't a random, okay, I'll take you, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, or, you know, this... Jesus had lots of, first of all, he had lots of disciples. It tells us here that it was, when it was day, he called his disciples. And out of them, he chose 12. So we don't know how many that disciple number was. Some say it was 70 because he's, there's a point where he sends out, you know, 70 and, you know, two by two. And uh, maybe it was. I, I don't know. There's not a reason for us to know. But it could have been a, a, a sizable number like that, that have been, when it says his disciples, they've already chosen to identify. They're not the crowds, but they're his disciples. They've chosen to identify themselves with Jesus, to follow him, and to learn from him. Because that's what disciple means. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. A disciple is one who has a teacher, a master, who is actively teaching them. So they're following Jesus as their master and teacher, their rabbi, if you will. 
because they want to learn him and his from him and his ways. And and it says he calls them together after praying all night long, and he chooses twelve. And Luke is very careful to say that he named whom he named apostles. The Greek word here is apostolos. Okay? Apostolos. A-P-O-S-T-L-O-S. A-P-O-S-T-O-L-O-S. Apostolos. Which literally means one who is sent. So, if we were going to talk about like an ambassador to a government, an ambassador to a kingdom, that's one who's been sent in the name of the authority of the government to go and represent that government. That's the same word. The Greeks used it, that same word for that type of role. So it's, it, it's someone you send on an errand for you is your apostle because you've sent them to do something for you, to represent you, to get that for you. And so in this case, Jesus is choosing 12 that he's going to name to be his ambassadors to the world, to the ends of the earth. Now, we know that these 12 die, most of them, an early death and a horrible, tragic death. But that doesn't mean that their ministry doesn't extend to the ends of the earth. And we're going to talk about that because all true ministry is truly apostolic. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's talk about who they are, these apostles. Um, he starts with Simon. He says, and the first is, is named Simon, whom he named Peter. So Luke is giving preferential treatment to Simon at the head of the class because Peter clearly was the head of the disciples. There's no, no question about it. Peter was chosen to be their leader. Scripture and history attest to that. But Luke also wants us to know that his name was Simon, and he's giving him that. Uh, he's telling us that this is the one who Jesus changed his name, and he changed it for a reason. Uh, because of that leadership role, that rock role that he wanted Peter to fill. Now, and then it says his brother Andrew, because we know Andrew's the one who ran and got his brother. Actually, Andrew met Jesus before uh, Peter, we learn in John's Gospel. So, and Andrew, his brother. And then James and John, which, of course, are brothers, the sons of Zebedee, it tells us. Uh, well, it doesn't tell us that here, but the others do. James and John are these uh, sons of Zebedee. They're, we know that they're partners from looking at all the Gospels. We know they're partners with Peter in a fishing business. And that's where they met Jesus, down by the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, fishing. And James and John and Peter and Andrew are the first four mentioned. And Peter, James, and John, we know, are that kind of inner council of the apostles, because we see them over and over throughout, not being preferred over the others, but Jesus had a reason to pull aside these three. He put more into them, because in every organization there has to be leaders. Uh, and these were the leaders of the, of the leaders, if you will. These are the apostles of the apostles, if you will. Um, and, and so that's an important place. So Luke names them. I mean, Luke is writing back in history, and he's giving us these names in order for a reason. And then he says, Philip and Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew, if you're a student of this and you look at the other Gospels, 
you see that in John's gospel, there's somebody in his list, there's somebody named Nathaniel. What the scholars have put together after looking at this is two of these apostles go by two different names. And that's not unusual, really. Um, it's not this name change thing like Simon to Peter, but they just obviously go by different names. Uh, sometimes, we all know people that, that do that. Uh, nobody calls me James, but that's my middle name, Bradley James. Uh, but if I had chosen at one point in my life to prefer James over Bradley, you know, there might be some people that know me as that and others that know me by the other through, and that's what it is. So Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same. And it says Matthew and Thomas. Matthew is Levi. We learned about him, the tax collector who Jesus called. And, and uh, I think it's important to note that Luke doesn't call him in this official list. Luke does not call him Levi like he did all through the last chapter where he was calling him as a disciple. He talked about Levi a lot. But he's calling him Matthew now because this is the official list and this is who he is. He's no longer Levi the tax collector. He's Matthew, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And then it says Thomas, we know Thomas, the one who was not present in the upper room after the resurrection, who gets that label doubting Thomas, although that's not really a fair label to him. Studied that back in the Gospel of John. You can go back and review that in chapter 20. And then it says James, the son of Alphaeus. So there's lots of James in G Always lots of people named James hanging around. So that's my biblical name. I got my middle one after a Bible character. James, the son of Alphaeus. And it says Simon, who was called the Zealot. It's important to note what a Zealot is. A Zealot, now we might call somebody a Zealot or we say they're zealous because they're kind of they're crazy about something. Oh, he's really zealous about that. He's just uh, kind of a fanatic about that, whatever the issue is. Well, the zealots in scriptural terms, when Luke is talking about zealots, he's talking about a political party. And like we have Democrats and Republicans, they had zealots. They had really the, the, uh, the political times of Israel. Uh, there were really about four different groups of people that were leadership type people. There were the Pharisees, obviously, okay, and there were the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the learned, like lawyers, uh, scribes. The Sadducees were kind of like the ruling council, like the elected. That I don't. They weren't necessarily elected, but the council that governed. There were the Essenes. The Essenes were the the real studious monks of the time, if you will. They always lived off in seclusion and studied the scripture. And there were the zealots. Zealots were very active in what we would call political insurrection. I mean, they, and they usually lived up around Galilee because that was a very uh, strong place of political insurrection uh, that Rome always had to deal with. And so the fact that, that Simon here is called a zealot is... Luke's given that detail for a reason. He wants us to know that he really is someone who was considered a political outsider. I mean, this guy was to the left of the left, okay? They were, they were always looking for a reason to revolt and rebel and had a rebellious nature. So when we think about this, uh, then he ends the list with Judas, the son of James, 
and Judas. Two Judas to end the list. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, the one we know, he tells us right here, who became a traitor. The one who betrayed Jesus. Now, again, when you're looking at all of the lists of the apostles from the other Gospels, we note that there is no Judas, the son of James, in Mark's list. But there's a Thaddeus. So Thaddeus is Judas. Now, again, not uncommon to be called by more than one name. But why the 12 names? Why didn't? I'm going to come back to the thought on the fact that that the zealot and the traitor. I'm going to come back to that. But why the 12 names? Why didn't Luke just say? Why didn't all the gospel writers just say? And he prayed all night long and he chose for himself 12. That's important chose 12. So we know there are leaders. But it's important that these names, all the gospel writers want to give the names. And the reason is because with this naming, there is now an official list. There is now an official list and it cannot be altered. Okay, This is the apostolate, the apostolic office of the future church of Jesus Christ. That's so important for us to remember. Um, it, it's No one else can add their name to this list. God can add to this list, and God did add to this list. After Judas betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, we read in the first chapter of the book of Acts that they needed to fill his office. Sylvia says, so that no one else could claim to be one of them. That's exactly right. No one else could claim, well, I was one of them. I was on the mountain that day. You know, No, no, no. Every gospel writer records the names. It's clear in history. Everyone's going to know. Everyone ever follows Jesus is going to know who the apostles. Where's the office of the apostle? What is the office of the apostle? Well, we see it functioning in the book of Acts. After Jesus has ascended, they're gathered together in the upper room, and Peter who's in charge, Peter stands up and says, you know, we need to elect someone to take Judas' place. In the old King James Version I seen it says, and let his bishopric another take. So the office of apostle is called bishopric. Well, bishop is from the bishopric or the office of the bishop is from the Greek word, when we read Acts in the Greek, episkopos, episkopos, okay? Think episcopal church, okay? The word episkopos means overseer or hierarch or uh, superintendent, okay? So the office of the bishop, as Jesus set up the church, was to be someone who is an overseer and a superintendent. And it was a limited office and given to 12. Of course, they elect uh, Matthias, I believe was his name, to take uh, Judas' place. And we never hear anything more about poor Matthias, but I'm sure he had a wonderful ministry. Uh, and of course, we know that there's one more, kind of that baker's dozen, if you will, that's added in by the Lord Jesus himself. And that's the Apostle Saul. The Apostle Paul. Saul, who was named, became known as Paul, on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus Christ called him, chose him, revealed himself to him, and anointed him to join this band of apostles. Now, and of course, 
write two-thirds of the New Testament, so uh, uh, pretty amazing, or three-fourths or something like that. So as we come to uh, this list, I I want you to think with me about this list. We have Peter, Andrew, James, John, Fisherman. We have a very common, that's a blue collar of the day, fishermen, okay? They, they, they smelled like fish all day. That was a dirty work. It was hard work. And they're just the common laborers of the day. We have uh, Matthew, who we know, Levi, he's a tax collector. That's one of the most hated persons in society. We don't know what some of the others do, but we know they must have been ordinary men. Because they have no other place in history that they're commented as having been a part of a ruling group or an office holder or any kind of of place of great leadership. And and we know that Simon is a zealot, radical, radical political guy. We even have one who becomes and considers a traitor. So he's questionable in his character, maybe at the beginning even. So... What does this tell us? Why does Luke give us this list? Not just to tell us that this is a closed office, okay? This is an important and very closed office, but also to show us that the God is building his church on ordinary people like you and I, like you and me. You never know which that is. He's building his church like ordinary people on you and me, okay? These men are just about as ordinary and uneducated as you get. Uh, You know, if you look around any of my offices, and I have a couple, there are absolutely no fancy degrees on my wall. Um, In in the eyes of the church, I'm a fairly uneducated person. But you know what? I still think God has called me, and He's asked me to serve Him, even without some of those really... Fancy degrees that are so important in our world today in, in some pedigrees. But I, I really, I, that's, that's who these guys were. So the kingdom of God is open to everyone. And it's an upside down kingdom. It's not just for the elite. It's for everyone. In fact, it is governed by those who you would least expect, if you will. Now, I think it's important for us to note that he just chose 12. That number is so significant. We know there were 12 tribes in Israel. We know that there were the, the 12 sons of Jacob were the, the 12 patriarchs, if you will, uh, of Israel. And now there are 12 new patriarchs. The old covenant had 12 patriarchs. And everything about God's covenant was based on the race and the lineage. The race of the people and their lineage tracing back to their patriarch. Everything about the new covenant is based on openness, and everyone is welcome. We have 12 patriarchs that represent everyone in the world, the ordinary people of the world, and everyone is welcome in the new covenant. This 12 is, is, a, is a beautiful thing. It symbolizes a ministry for the whole world. And that's so important. We see that lived out in other times, like when 12 baskets full were found, when Jesus fed the the five thousand. Now, as we look at this, uh, let's let's move on just a little bit. It says that his it says that then in the next verse, which is verse seventeen, and he came down 
with them and stood on a level place. Probably, when it says them, he means the twelve. After he chose the twelve, I'm sure Jesus had a lot to say to them. And probably the others went on down. And we can see that inferred here because it says, when they come down to this level place, it says there's a great crowd of his disciples. That's who was with him he called up, remember? All the disciples chose the twelve, set the disciples back down, and the disciples are there with a great crowd or multitude, it says, of other people. So, Jesus eventually, he's got a lot to say. We don't know how long he spent up there on the mountain with the twelve. We don't know what he said to them. But I'm sure he had a lot to say to them. And I'm sure they had a lot of questions like, why me? But uh, he probably said things like, well, you'll understand in time. There's so much. He says that in John's Gospel. I love when he says, there's so much more I have to say to you, but you wouldn't understand it now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So, hi, Chip. Thanks for joining us today. Dwayne, thanks for joining us today. So, Jesus has come down the mountain with his 12 apostles, his new 12 apostles. And he joins then a great crowd waiting for him of the disciples that have been following him for weeks now. And then it says a great multitude of people. And Luke's careful to tell us who these people are. They're people from all of Judea. Okay, they're in Galilee now. But they're from all of Judea, which is a southern uh, part of the kingdom. And Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem's in Judea, but he notes Jerusalem, the holy city. He wants to note that there are many people there from the holy city as well as just Judea. And from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Remember where that is. That's north and what today is known as Lebanon. That is the pagan territory. That is the Gentile land. But yet there are followers there. There's this great multitude there. And it says they've all come to hear, to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And then Luke goes even a little bit further by telling us, you know what, in this great crowd of people, there's even a bunch of people that are filled with unclean spirits. Now, can you imagine this, this crowd on the hillside that day, on this, this, this level plain right, up, right off of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee? Anytime there's a crowd, you've got a lot of different personalities, uh, and, and personalities uh, are, everyone's unique. But you throw in a few evil spirits, and you've got a crazy crowd. And people, I mean, here is the Son of God, and He's healing them all. He's casting out these unclean spirits, curing them of their diseases. I think what Luke is giving us a picture of the church. Can you imagine Jesus healing all these people? And, and we know he did it one at a time. That's just, that was his style. I mean, he didn't just say, hey, y'all are healed, go home. He took the time to touch people. He took the time to minister to the individual. And the 12, I mean, what a great way to teach the 12, the essence of the kingdom of God. The essence of the kingdom of God is that it is a place of healing. And that is the church. It says here, and the, and the crowd sought to touch him, for power came forth from him and he healed them all. We know, that was what I was talking about. His, his style was to always touch people as much. You know, there was times when he just did it with the word of command, and that was for an important teaching point too. But generally speaking, it was about the touch, and it was about his connection with the people. 
I think we would be remiss if we didn't stop here this morning. Let me look at my notes because I tend to just go off and forget what I wrote. Um, I think we'd be remiss here if we didn't mention how important this picture of the church is that Luke is giving us. Let me, let me just name a few things. Number one, the church is organized. Okay, it's not just whoever. It's organized. There are 12 leaders. Now, we're 2,000 years after this, but I'm telling you the church is still organized. Okay, the church is still organized. These apostles, as I mentioned in the book of Acts, had their successors. We're given the succession of Judas to Matthias for a reason, because we know that's how Jesus must have wanted it to be handled. So there are some Christians today that believe that when these apostles all died, that their office died, that there is no apostolic office anymore. I can't imagine why they would believe that. That makes zero sense. The power and the authority was entrusted to the apostles, not to everyone. Okay, In limited situations, Jesus gave the 70 you know, he sent them out. But that was actually early in his ministry. That was before the apostolic choice of the twelve. And ever since the apostolic choice of the twelve, this is when, this is the power and authority. Remember Matthew chapter 18. That was the gospel of the lectionary just last Sunday. Jesus gave them all the authority to bind and loose. That authority can't die with them. That authority, I mean, the church is just beginning to grow when they're dying. And it goes through rapid expansion in the whole world in the next few hundred years, so much so that the whole Roman Empire is converted into, in a sense, not every person, but the empire is converted. And it had to carry on. So there were apostolic... So the early Christians, if you study the history of the early church, you know that there is this thing called apostolic succession. A lot of more evangelical, unorganized, looser organized churches or churches that are more congregational in nature that don't have any hierarchy, that is, they don't have superintendents or bishops or, or you know, hierarchy, they tend to teach, well, there is no apostolic secession, you know, it's just, it's not important. Well, I can see why, because they don't have anything to trace it back to. They don't want to admit that authority is there, but we have to admit that authority is there because it is prevalent throughout history. You can find today historical records in the ancient Eastern churches as well as in the Western churches of the Roman church and on tracing out into the Protestant faith through the uh, Anglican Reformation and, and the uh, continent of Europe, the Reformation of the continent of Europe. You can find records of people tracing their leaders, I mean not people, but leaders, bishops, if you will, superintendents, if you will, tracing their descendancy or their office, if you will, back to some one of these 12. It's, it's historical, and you can find it. The records are called diptychs. Now, the records actually, the diptychs, stop after the Protestant Reformation because the Roman Catholics of the West where the Protestants come from, refused to recognize Protestant authority. Once they said they left the, the one true church, they, they have no authority in, in these type of sacramental ways. But in the ministry of God, 
I mean, God is not bound by that. I mean, there were, there were good reasons why the Protestant Reformation had to happen. And this isn't a class on the Protestant Reformation, but there were things that happened in the Protestant Reformation that probably shouldn't have happened. I mean, there was, like most movements, they tend to swing with pendulums and go too far. But, but yet the reality is they happen. And the reality is, though, the Church of Jesus Christ today is not without its leaders. And that's why, until the modern era, there was no... There was no such thing as just, hey, me and a group of people are just going to form our own church. I mean, that's a very modern thought. Anytime that happened in the ancient world, there was usually a heresy involved. I mean, there was no reason to do it, first of all, because you knew life was in the church. And like St. Ignatius, who's a second-generation bishop, okay, Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in, you know, what is today Syria, Antioch, he was a a uh, student, a disciple, a follower, if you will, of John the Apostle, the one that lived so long, that lived up to the end of the first century. He learned from John. And, and Andy, Ignatius of Antioch, in his many writings, and he has many, many writings, some which were actually considered, maybe lightly considered, like these might be uh, good enough for Scripture. Of course, they weren't ultimately chosen for that, but they're well-read letters, and you can Google them and read them anywhere in online. Uh, Ignatius said, one of his teachings was, because there was always splinter groups wanting to go teach some weird doctrine here or something there and, and form their own thing because they didn't want to submit to any authority, then Ignatius said, look, where the bishop is, that's where the church is. Where the bishop is, that's where the church is. So there's this idea the idea of just forming your own church is, is totally modern. Uh, it's never and and to be successful, of course, it is successful today. There are huge churches that are are formed outside of any hierarchical boundaries, and and I'm not saying that they're not churches because obviously they have a beautiful spirit and the work of the gospel is being done by them. But it wasn't God's first plan. God's plan is to understand that the church has a structure and the church has an order. And it has authority. And he teaches, as he does, as we as good citizens of a nation, we, we're to obey authority. Because when we obey authority, when we obey, and he teaches that in the book of Romans in chapter 13, when we obey the authorities, we're actually obeying, you know, God. Because God gave them the authority, whether it's civil authority or church authority. Unless it's something that totally violates morality, then... The, the moral law of God, then we need to obey and work within the structure to help bring about change. Well, that's enough on that. But I really believe that's what Luke is giving us a picture of the, the future church. And here's the glorious picture of the future church, okay? Here's the glorious thing about it. It's a place of healing. The church of Jesus Christ is a place of healing. Think about your church, wherever your church is, whatever church you go to. Is it a place of healing? I hope so. I wonder just how many of our churches really even think of themselves as a place of healing anymore. I think what has become the dominant vision or version, I should say version, what has become the dominant version of churches today is a place of teaching. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus taught. The disciples taught. I mean, the apostles taught. That's what the New Testament is. It's their teachings. It's their letters. It's the teachings of the Twelve, if you will. 
Nothing wrong with that. But the church was always a place of healing. People were continually coming because that's what we need. We Ultimately, we as humans, we need healing before we need teaching. And, and I think Luke is showing this, this here to us, okay? Why does Jesus come down from the mountain to cure the people? On a low place. Because that's their level. They're not ready for the high places of God. They're not ready for the Mount of Beatitudes. They're not ready for the vision of the Mount of Transfiguration. They're in their sin. They're held by evil spirits. They're captive. And they need to be free. And so, Jesus and his apostles, the church, descend to come and heal in the lower places. And then, once we're healed, we learn to ascend to the higher places. If you just want to give that, just that, in a nutshell, that's the church. That's the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, go, I give you all authority, go and make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that is the Great Commission. I believe this is the picture of what that looked like. Going out, healing people. Because we know from the book of Acts, that's what they did. They went out, and they healed people. And, and in a few cases, even raised the dead. But miraculous things happened around these apostles. And of course, they taught the truth of God. I, th- I, think, I think churches need to wake up today. I hope that in this time of, I think in this time of pandemic, if we learn anything, we need to l- relearn what it means to be the church. And what it means to be the church is not to build the latest, greatest building or the fanciest style of technology or whatever. Those are all fine and dandy if you're doing the A, Bs, and Cs. If you can afford them, God's blessed in that way, but they won't take the place of the A, Bs, and Cs, which is the, which is the baptizing and the teaching and the healing. Okay, Actually, it really should be in the opposite order. The healing, the baptizing, and then the teaching. That's the A, Bs, and Cs. That's what the church needs to be about. And you can do that anywhere. It doesn't have to be a, some great fancy building. Uh, and I really hope we learn that because what I'm afraid is happening, we've got to get that message out. I mean, in, in many ways, that's why when I began Brad Riley Ministries last year, I began it with a fervent call to bring renewal to the Church of Jesus Christ in all her forms. Whether I'm ministering to Presbyterians or Methodists or Baptists or Catholics, I don't care. We all love the Lord. We all need each other. We're never going to agree on every little piece of doctrine. But we do agree on the essence of the Christian faith, and we need to be united in that, and we need to become the church that heals and baptizes and teaches. And uh, so the fact that churches got shut down, uh, maybe in the providence of God, we're going to look at God maybe as a way of weeding out some churches that just totally, they're going to fall because they weren't doing what needed to be done. Um, 
I don't know. I'm not trying to be a prophet here. I'm just saying uh, it clearly a lot of churches are hurting. As some are starting to open up, not everyone's coming back. And you can say, well, maybe not everyone should come back. I, I don't know. I'm not their judge. But I do know that the church should be open to everyone. And the fact that people are not coming back makes me sad. It really makes me sad. It makes me wonder, what are they, what are they coming back to? Because their lives have been so crushed. This pandemic has crushed people's lives. It has, it has crushed their hope. It has depressed their spirits. It has made them physically and spiritually ill. They need a church that is a hospital more than ever to come back to. That's the message I want to get out. That's the message. So I didn't know I'd be doing it over the airwaves with Brad Riley Ministries. I really thought I'd be busy every weekend doing it in, in church groups, preaching revival and spiritual renewal. But, but it looks like for the foreseeable future, it's going to be online. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I just want to be used of God. And so this Bible study is a part of that ministry. This is a part of Brad Riley Ministries. It's, it's a part of who I am. Yes, I pastor a church part-time in Udall, Kansas, and that is, uh, that is a wonderful blessing, and that is a, a different part of Brad Riley Ministries. I'm there because, as I told the, the, the Methodist District Superintendent, my ministry is to help bring renewal, and if I can help bring it in one of your small herding churches, then I'm there. And he said, great, come along. But, I, but Brad Riley Ministries is, is about this whole ministry thing, this this touching all churches, all people everywhere. And I can't do it without you. Um, you know, it's a difficult time for nonprofits to raise money. Many of, many of the names on this call serve and help in my ministry. Many of you have given and donated to this ministry. And, and I don't like to turn every Bible study into a plea for donations. I don't mean that at all. But I want you to know it is, it is you <laughs> I have no ability to do this on my own uh, to get out there and, and do some of the things that need to be done. Uh, so right now I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying. I need to go to a mountain <laughs> to pray because I'm really praying through some visionary things that I, I think I'm hearing from God about He wants me to do with not only this Bible study but with the ministry overall to, to get out there into a, a broader community, if you will, uh, through this online opportunity that was never there before when we were just meeting in a room in a church. So I'm praying about how to do that. I appreciate your prayers. That's the most important thing, whether you ever give a dollar or not. The most important thing is your prayers. Pray, unite to pray for me and for this ministry. Um, I want to thank you for your presence in this Bible study week by week. And uh, it, it just, this, this is the high point of my week. I love this hour. I don't know, like I said last week, I'm not sure this hour will always be Thursday at 11, but it will always be as long as, as long as I have breath. I guess like the old song says, my dear brother Richard North used to sing. Whenever I hear it, I think of him. As long as I have breath, I will sing to you. As long as I have breath, I will sing your praise. Wherever you lead me, I will follow you. As long as I have breath, I will sing your praise. Well, it is almost to the top of the hour, and we have looked through seven verses in the Gospel of Luke. Next week, we are going to, to begin Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He doesn't call it that. Some of your Bibles call it the Sermon on the Plain because it's this. he said he came down to a level place. Next week I'll show you why I still believe Jesus is up on the mountainside or the hillside teaching. But we'll save that for next week. Uh, the Catechetical Lectures. My, my Bible here calls it the Catechetical Lectures, a way of life and a way of death. That will be a fascinating study. I love the Beatitudes. Uh, that is where that is the heart of where our lives need to be lived. So, can't wait to teach that to you. Thank you for being here today. I love you all, and uh, God bless you. And go have another cup of coffee and enjoy this cool, soft, rainy weather. It's awesome. Let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person on this call, in uh, on this video, and every person that will ever listen to it around the world. Father God, have mercy on them, touch them, heal them, protect them, forgive them, encourage them, strengthen them, and build them up in the faith of Jesus Christ, that we may all be your apostles, that we may all be your sent ones sent out in the world to live and love like Jesus Christ. Forgive us when the times we, for the times we don't and that we have failed. But, for, but strengthen us for life anew. Now I ask this in Jesus' strong name, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me today. See you next week.